This past week, I watched on television as the U.S. coalition forces um, entered into Baghdad, the capital of Iraq. And perhaps you either saw that footage on television or you read about it on, in the newspaper or you saw video footage on the Internet. But it was quite a remarkable sight. The Iraqis were jubilant, celebrating the entry of these forces into the capital of their country. As the troops entered, as the tanks, U.S. tanks, entered into the capital of Baghdad, the citizens were chanting and cheering on what in years past would be called the, the Great Serpent, us, going into uh, their country. And, you know, one of the news accounts said that the Iraqi citizens poured into the street, some taking off their shirts and waving them around in celebration. I don't know if you saw them waving their shirts and running down the, down the street, uh, shirtless, the men. Um, and they, they were just jubilant, filled with joy at what happened. And, and it says other Iraqis picked flowers from a nearby garden and handed them to the Marines. One of the Marines remarked and said, we were nearly mobbed by people trying to shake our hands. Why is it that they were so happy to have U.S. forces, who's commonly known as their enemy, in their capital, in their tanks? Why is it that they were so jubilant? It's because this force came in not to oppress them, but to free them. This force came in to oust an oppressive regime that's killed tens of thousands of people and to give them freedom, even though it was by great pain and by great suffering. And I can't help but, as I saw that footage and read the accounts, think of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He is coming in to Jerusalem to free people. And there was a group of people that saw it that day and and had some inkling of what was happening. And they were jubilant, just like the Iraqis, as we're going to see this morning. And they actually did many of the same things. Picking greenery and throwing it and taking off cloaks and doing many of of the similar things that the Iraqis were doing as the U.S. forces entered into Baghdad. His arrival in Jerusalem was what we celebrate on this day, Palm Sunday, because of the palms that were cast about and uh, uh, woven, waven, woved, waved. You know what I mean. Shaken around in the air. Um, to celebrate His coming into Jerusalem. And this is one of the few accounts that is mentioned in all four Gospels. And all the four accounts come together and form a beautiful account of what happened on that day, each giving different uh, points of 
of what happened, but all together in harmony, showing Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And Jesus was going into Jerusalem for one of the three most holy days of the annual festivals of the Jews, the Passover. The Passover celebration was begun a night long, long before when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And that final terrible plague was to come upon the Egyptians and upon anyone who did not put the blood of a lamb or goat onto the lentil, onto the doorpost of their door. And so the Jews that night celebrated a Passover. They put the blood on the doorpost. And when the angel of death came through the land of Egypt, it passed over, Passover, passed over any house that had the blood on the doorpost. And so that is what is celebrated on the Passover, on this high holy day of the Jews. And so Jesus is coming in to celebrate this commemoration. And this celebration of Jesus' arrival was anxiously anticipated. We know from John 11 that the chief priests and the Pharisees had planned to kill Jesus. They'd planned it many times and had been unsuccessful. He had eluded their grasp many times. And they were looking for Him to catch Him and to kill Him. And they said, if you see Him, let us know so that we may put Him to death. And it says in John 11 that therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to a country near the wilderness in a city called um, Ephraim. And there He stayed with His disciples, instructing them, preparing them. And they did not understand what was about to happen. Repeatedly, He tells them, and repeatedly, you know, Peter, you know, no way, Lord, it's not going to happen. And repeatedly, they are not getting it. And, I mean, I think we must admit that if we were in their midst, we would have done just the same as them. We would not have been as uh, wiser than they were. We would have been just like them. Uh, Several of us would have been Peter's. Uh, no, Lord, come on, I, I can think of better ways to do this. But He was instructing them. But now, as Jesus' public ministry is about to come to an end in just a few days, He's preparing to come. And we know that the people were anxiously anticipating His arrival from what is recorded in John 11.55. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. And it's interesting to note here, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus says that right before the fall of Rome in 70 A.D., that nearly 2.7 million people, Jews, not the Gentiles and the unclean, Jews celebrated the Passover in Jerusalem. 2.7 million people converged and we're there to celebrate the Passover celebration. And it's actually very interesting that on the Sunday preceding the Passover, the lambs were brought in and they were to be sacrificed later 
that week. Well, this day, the Jews were wondering if Jesus was going to come in. It says in John 11, continuing, So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That He will not come to the feast at all? Because He was out in the country and He's not around. What happened to Him? Is He not going to come? This is the high holy day. And now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where He was, He was to report it so that they might seize Him. Well, Jesus knew exactly what would happen when He went into Jerusalem. And as I mentioned, He continued to try to prepare His disciples for what was going to happen. And all was set. And God's plan could not be altered. It could not be put aside. The timing was right. And the Son of Man was coming to Jerusalem so that He might die. To set His people free to set us free from the oppressive rule of sin and death. And so this entry was anticipated. But it was anticipated for a different reason. They, the Jews, were anticipating a ruler who was going to come and overthrow the oppressive occupying forces of Rome who was ruling their land, their holy city. Pagans, Gentiles were ruling over the Jews. And they were looking for their Messiah who was going to come in, the Anointed One who was going to come in and cast them out, rise up and overthrow the Romans. And in Luke 19.11, the physician records, while they, the disciples, were listening to these things, Jesus, Jesus went on to tell a parable because He was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. They were looking for this cataclysmic uh, overthrow of the Roman rulers. And so this is the context as we go into this triumphal entry that we're going to read in Luke chapter 19. Our scripture text, Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. Again, this is in each of the Gospels, recorded in different forms, but uh, much of the details are, are exactly the same. And this one has something that's a little bit extra that I think is worth us focusing on. This is God's Word. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. That's page 64 in the New Testament of your Pew Bibles. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. 
They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. No, they were shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these became silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus is approached. He had made the preparations. And a lot of time is spent on the, the entry as He is approaching. He's coming out of the country into Jerusalem. Coming from the east, approaching Bethphage and Bethany. And He's destined for Jerusalem. Now He's just two miles away. from the holy city, the city of peace, Jerusalem. But this time he will not enter in his normal manner as he was accustomed. He won't walk in on his own two feet. This time he's going to come into the city riding on a donkey. Two, don- two disciples were sent to fetch the donkey, a colt, uh, and they bring the mother with it as recorded in Matthew 21. And they bring this donkey on which no one had ever ridden. This is a donkey which had not been put to common use. It is worthy of a sacred, kingly use. And we know that this is a tradition or custom with the Jews. In Numbers 19.2, the red heifer that was to be sacrificed was not to ever have had a yoke put upon it. And then also in 1 Samuel 6.7, the cows that were to pull the ark were not to have had a yoke been put upon it. It was not to be used for common uses, but when the things were to be used for sacred, for kingly uses, they were to be pure, unused for normal use that we would use them. And so a donkey that had never been ridden was brought. And when it was brought, the disciples throw their coats, or if it's better, their cloaks. They they didn't wear coats like we do, a robe. They throw their outer garments onto the donkey and they place Jesus on the donkey. I think it's beautiful here how we see that all of creation is at the disposal of the Lord. He needs a donkey. He calls for it and is brought to Him 
and it is used for Him. And that is the way the creation is to be used. All of it is under and at His disposal for His use. And that includes us, His creation, and all that we possess. It has been given to us as a stewardship to be used for Him and for our sustenance. Now, it might seem strange that he doesn't, this king does not enter into Jerusalem on a horse. There were horses around there. They were much less common than donkeys. A horse would have represented a militaristic overthrow, which is not what he is coming into Jerusalem to do. He's coming in on a peaceful foal. And this is what was prophesied as was read earlier by David. Uh, Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph! Again, shouting. Do you notice that? O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on, the colt, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so this prophecy that was written hundreds of years before the coming of the Messiah into Jerusalem was fulfilled by Jesus on this day. And the disciples put their cloaks onto the donkey for Him to ride on. Now, can you imagine the anticipation at this point? The city is abuzz with this death warrant which has been uh, proclaimed against Jesus. He's been staying out in the outer regions. People are wondering, is He going to come? Is He going to miss this day? And the disciples are thinking that this is the time for the kingdom of God to come. But they think of it in a different way. They don't understand entirely what is going to take place. And John, a little bit later, after this, it says, only afterwards did they fully understand the Scriptures that were fulfilled and taking place on this day. Millions of people are converging upon the city. People are on the lookout for that troublemaker, Jesus. The Jews are excited about being able to go to the holy city. The people are excited to see Jerusalem, the holy city, to be able to celebrate this great feast. And now Jesus is coming into the city, is approaching it from afar, coming into the city on a donkey as a king, albeit humbly. And it says in verse 36 of our passage, in Luke 19, it says, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road, their cloaks. They were taking them off, and they were, you can think of the, uh, the people on the TV throwing their coats around, and they were throwing them on the ground, and this donkey is walking on them. He's, they're just walking on the coats. It's an old coat, don't worry. Uh, they're walking on them. This donkey is walking on them. The people are trampling. They're all muddy. They're probably not going to find it. You can imagine thousands of people around. They're going up, and they're throwing them. You're not going to find it again. It's like at graduation when you throw your cap up, you know it's gone. You're not going to find your cap again. That's why they use those plastic ones. But they are preparing the way for the Lord. 
They are filled with expectation for the Messiah who's coming into the kingdom to take it by storm. And this was a common practice. Well, not common. It's precedented. 2 Kings 9.13 when Jehu was named king. The people take off their cloaks, throw them on the steps under him, shouting, Jehu is king! Jehu is king! And so this is the road that was prepared for the Messiah with coats strewn all over it. And also we know from Matthew that palm branches were strewn in the middle of the road and people were waving them about. And then in verse 37 and 38 we see, as soon as He was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice, with a loud voice, with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen and they were shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And we know from the other Gospel accounts that others were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And you can imagine, it wasn't uh, all together now, let's go. You know, it wasn't all in everybody at the same time shouting it. People are shouting out these praises just from their hearts. Worshipping God. Worshipping God for all these miracles which they had seen. Praising Him. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And this was known, as we know from one of the other accounts that this was in the forefront of their brains as they were praising God. I believe it's from the Gospel of John where it's mentioned. And that Jesus, this man, can raise the dead. Ah, it must be time. He's coming in to claim His kingdom. And they're praising God using Psalm 118, which was read earlier by Wayne. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! Hosanna! Save us, God! Save us! Is what it means. It's a transliteration from the Aramaic. And it is used of praise generically. And it's used specifically from Psalm 118 as a messianic, as a verse that is foretelling the coming of the Messiah. That's what the Jews thought when this verse was read. And now it is being applied to Jesus as He enters His kingdom. And so they're shouting about. They're waving palm branches. They're ripping off their outer garments. They're shouting. They're rejoicing loudly with a loud voice. And it must have been such a chaotic scene. It must have appeared oh so undignified for our taste. I bet you can't imagine if you have the picture now 
as I've tried to give it to you, I hope successfully, I bet you can't imagine them standing there waving or like this, like I stand, like most of us stand and worship, tight. They were worshiping God and they were excited about Jesus. They were excited that Jesus was coming in and they were worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. They were proclaiming Scriptures with their lips. Psalm 118, from memory. And they were throwing their coats on the roads and waving the palm branches around them, shouting, Give salvation now. Hosanna. And so they thought that their salvation had come. And it had. They thought that their salvation would be the overthrow of this evil empire. And so as we think about that day, this is, I think Wayne said it or David said it, this worship was due every bit to Jesus and to God for the wonderful works which had been accomplished for the raising of Lazarus, for the uh, many healings, for all the miraculous deeds which Jesus had done to glorify God because their deliverance was near. But not all were equally pleased with what was happening. We see a very different scene with the Pharisees. Look at uh, verse 39. The Pharisees, the religious rulers... Now, these Pharisees might have been traveling on the road from Galilee, going into the temple, going in for the sacrifice of the Passover, uh, just in the entourage. Uh, We know that Jesus is still a ways out from a verse a little bit later that we're going to read. But these Pharisees who were there see what is happening in this most undignified sight. And what do they do? What do the Pharisees do when they see this? Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Rebuke your disciples. They thought that this was not appropriate worship. They thought that this might draw the attention of the Romans and cause a um, trying to squash what is happening. They thought that this is not the way that Jesus should be worshipped or God should be worshipped. What they did not understand is that it is man's purpose to glorify God. It is our duty to glorify and worship God. And it is our privilege to worship and to glorify God. We... Man, 
are made to worship God. We are made in the image of God, given an intellect and a reason, given emotion, and we have the stamp of God upon us, made in His image, though it is marred by sin with the fall of Adam. But we are made in the image of God, and we are called to worship God And that is what He made us for. But this desire to worship God is corrupted by sin. Instead, we seek to worship Allah, Muhammad, Buddha, Michael Jordan, Rob Hooper, Tom Cruise. I'm in good company, right? Britney Spears. You name it. We worship anything that we can think of. We distort it. But what we were made is we were made in the image of God to worship our Creator. We are not called to worship sports, ourselves, money, comfort, leisure, food, job security, golf, sex, money, false gods. You name it. What pops into your brain? What is that that just popped into your brain besides God? That is what we are not called to worship. We are called to worship God alone. And God is a jealous God desiring all of our affection, all of our worship, and He will not have it any other way. And we are to worship God Almighty, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, three persons and one, triune God in perfection. And this worship is not supposed to be something that happens on Sunday morning alone. It is to be a worship which takes place all week long. Whether we are at work or we are at play. God has put into our fiber, into our essence, the need to worship Him And we are to worship Him by offering up our bodies, Paul tells the Romans in chapter 12, our bodies as living sacrifices to Him. And if we do not worship Him, it is a fearful thing, as we will see in just a moment. If we do not worship Him, God does not need us to worship Him. God is in need of nothing. Look at verse 40. God doesn't need us. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these these people, this mob of this multitude is praising me, Jesus, if they are silent, they become silent, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. Inanimate, stupid stones will cry out and put us to shame if God's people do not worship Him. God will be praised with or without us. And it had better be with us.
Will you leave the worship of God to stupid stones who are not made in His image, who are not made with an intellect or reason, who are not made with emotion, unless, of course, you have a pet rock, right? Uh, Those have been off the scene for a while. Those are not called to worship God. All creation gives glory to God because it shows His handiwork and the creation and the stars. We know that. But those rocks were not made to sing praises to God. Our mouths were made to sing praises to God. Our mouths were made to give praises to God. And so the question is, will you not cry out and worship God? and be humiliated by rocks? Will you worship God as you do your work heartily as for the Lord? Will you worship God as you care for your next door neighbor? Will you worship God in your prayer closet in the morning? Will you worship God with your whole being? Let's see what happens to those who refuse to worship God. Look at verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Jesus wept over the city. This term, wept, is... I don't know what you think about when, think, when you think of wept. Uh, it sound, it's weak for the Greek. Wailing is a better word. He wailed over Jerusalem. Why is Jesus wailing over Jerusalem? He's approaching the holy city. He's descending the mount. He's getting ready to come up into the elevated city, the fortress on the hill. He sees this city. He's entering it as a king. And he weeps over it. Why? Why does he weep over it? Because he knows what's going to happen. He knows that the city is going to turn on him in just a few days. And they're going to be yelling, Crucify him! They will not give him the praise that he deserves. They will not worship him. And so he weeps over the city that is hardening its heart to him and to God, his Father. And when they reject him, they reject God the Father. And when we reject Jesus, we reject God the Father. And so he wails over the city. He laments. And we know from Luke 13, another account, he says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I want to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not have it. So Jesus weeps, wails over the city that is about to chew him up and spit him out and crucify him. He desires to gather him under his wings. 
and they would not have it. They rejected Him. Look at verse 42. This is what He says. Now, I want you to notice one thing. How often you comes up in this passage. You or your. And this is what Jesus says. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now you have been, uh, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jerusalem, the city of peace, even you did not know the things which make for peace. The city which should have known what made for peace did not know. And therefore, time of visitation, which can either be good or bad, and I think it's quite clear from this passage, it's quite bad. Time of judgment was going to come upon that city, and it did. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records the siege of the city, 70 A.D., coming in with towers, building them up. They're burned down. A wall is built. The city is toppled. The walls are torn down. The children and the women and the men of that city are destroyed. Just as it says right here. They refuse to worship the Messiah. And a time of judgment came upon them because they would not worship the living and true God. This city sought for peace. They looked for it in all the wrong places. They did not look to the great reconciler between God and man There would be peace in heaven. As the disciples chanted that day. Because of what Jesus was coming to do to die on a cross to reconcile us to God. To take away the wrath of God which is justly due upon all our unrighteousness. All our worship of the created things instead of the Creator. All of our idolatry, fornication, immorality, pride, greed, you name it. All of those things, the judgment of God is coming upon. And Jesus came to make peace. But we know that Jerusalem would not have it. They didn't want it. And they would not get it because they did not want it. The time of visitation came and at that point it was too late. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We are able to stand right in God's presence because of 
faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came as a peace for us. He comes into the city on this day that we remember Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry is a lamb to be slain on our behalf. So that we may stand in God's presence. We can look for peace in many different places. We can look for it in drugs, alcohol, sex. We can look for peace in our jobs, in job security. We can look for peace in all sorts of places. But there is only one place to find peace, and that is resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So my question is, do you know that peace? Do you know the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a relationship with Him? And if you don't, I would urge you, if you're a high schooler, young kid, Put your trust into Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Him. And, you know, I'm, I, 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 it's on page 9 of my notes, and I don't have it with me. Uh, there is a, a quote of an, uh, that I read in one of the news sources. An Iraqi said, or no, it was a, I think it was an Egyptian who said, yeah, they're happy now. These Iraqis are happy now. But that will pass. And they will not tolerate an occupying force in their land, referring to the U.S. and Baghdad. They, they will not uh, put up with that for very long. And just as Jesus makes his triumphal entry as the soldiers did into Baghdad, freeing us from our sin, this is an occupation that is permanent. Jesus comes in, and if He is your Lord, it is a permanent thing. He is always your Lord throughout your life until you die. It is not a temporary thing that uh, you take if you accept Jesus as your Savior. And finally, just two brief applications. Do we weep over Bloomington? Do we weep over Bloomington and her rebellion towards God? Do we weep over the perishing who are coming under the great judgment of God, righteous judgment of God, for their disobedience? Do we see and want for them to turn from their sin? Or are we more like Jonah? A reluctant prophet claims the message and sits back to wait for destruction. And then when the destruction did not come, because the people turned and, rejo- uh, and they were rejoicing in what God had done, Jonah was mad. And finally, can we worship God extravagantly? Not just here, as we we should, but in all of our life. This afternoon, tomorrow, the rest of the week. The people were praising God because of the wonderful works which they saw, shouting with a loud voice, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Shout with me, will you? If this is true to you. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They did it for a long time. Let's pray.